All right, take your Bible and open to uh, the book of John, John chapter 19, verse 31, and to uh, the end of the chapter. All right, John 19. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, piercing his side with a spear, uh, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they've pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, and he came therefore and took away the body. Nicodemus also, or Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, being a, uh, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with uh, spices, and as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the, the place there was, uh, where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful for an opportunity to come this morning and to study again your word in this uh, uh, event of the burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would guide us and open our heart uh, to receive the truth that you have even in this uh, uh, situation of Christ's burial, and, and then help us to be mindful again of the fact that we represent you, and may we re represent you well in a world that desperately needs to know uh, the hope of the gospel. And, and we just pray your guidance on our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, we're looking here at the burial of Christ. Uh, uh, as I told you before, I think it's a vitally important uh, matter that we should not skip over or treat uh, lightly. Uh, I told you that no mere man has the ability to choose the moment of his death, uh, but it is a reality and a fact that Jesus Christ willed his own death. At the precise moment he desired, he willed his own death. And the fact is the text says Jesus bowed his head and gave up, or he yielded up his spirit. He's the one who did it. He, he's the one who gave his life away. Nobody took his life from him. He laid his life down on his own free will. John chapter 10, verse 17. Uh, for this reason, he says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I, uh, that I may take it again. No one has taken my life or taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Now, the fact that he has laid down his life in the precise manner at the precise moment that he decided, again, is a demonstration of supernatural power. Through the events of his dying, his burial, then his subsequent resurrection from the dead, it reveals in the clearest possible testimony the fact that Jesus is God come in human flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has the power of life. He is the one who has the power of death, over the power over death. And as I said last time, death is a terror. We understand that. Death is a terror for, for all men. 
All men fear death because they know deep down inside that they're accountable to God whom, uh, who is their creator, and they know that they're going to stand before him and give an account for their life. And men fear death because no one knows when it's going to happen. No one knows when it's going to occur. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8 says, No man has the authority over or, or, the, or, or, or authority over the day of his death. There's no man who has the power to dismiss his life or send away his spirit. No man except this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the truth is, he's the one man, one man that all men need to know. Because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes what? Judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. For the unrighteous, the judgment will be a condemnation to eternal punishment because they don't know, they did not know in time, this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had rejected God's mercy that he offered to men through him. But for the righteous, for the believer, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it'll be a resurrection to eternal glory, a resurrection to condemnation, eternal judgment, a resurrection to eternal glory. It all depends what you do with the person of Jesus Christ in time. And God desires that men would know him. God desires that all men would come to know him and, and come to a knowledge of the truth and not perish. And God has provided that opportunity uh, through his son. Now, when we come to our text uh, this morning, it's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Jesus has been on the cross for about six hours. And that's a very short amount of time for people who've been crucified because a lot of men languished on the cross for several days. So three hours is a very short amount of time. The men on either side of him are crucified the very same time that he was crucified, and they're still alive, but Jesus is dead. So let's begin to look at the text here. I think last time we made it down to about verse 37, but let's back up one verse and review by starting up in verse 30. And again, because we're looking at the burial of Jesus Christ, don't miss this uh, fact. Because we're looking at the burial of Jesus Christ, it proves the fact that Jesus is already what? Dead. He's already dead. Jesus has lived a real life in a real body and has died a real death. Verse 30 of John 19. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, he is the one who's doing this. He's dead. His sovereign power, in his sovereign power, he has dismissed his spirit. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation. Now, the day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is on a Saturday, therefore the day of preparation, the day before Saturday is Friday, therefore Jesus is dead and crucified on Friday, right? The day, day of preparation, he's dead and crucified on a Friday, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which would be the next day. The Sabbath was a high day. It was the Passover Sabbath, again, sacred of all Sabbaths above uh, all of the Sabbaths. Uh, they asked, the Pilate, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Now, the Jewish religious leaders don't want these dead men's bodies to hang on the, uh, on the cross on the Sabbath. They think it's a violation of Deuteronomy uh, 21, 22 and following that says a person who's been put to death, hung on a cross, uh, must be buried, uh, hung on a tree, must be buried on the same day because that person is cursed of God. And if you don't bury him, then the land is cursed. But again, it's really an act of uh, nauseating, blatant hypocrisy uh, that the Jewish religious leaders uh, murder the Lord of the Sabbath in order to try to keep the Sabbath. Right? They, they, they willingly murder the Son of God who is innocent, the innocent Lord Jesus Christ. So in the twisted, perverted thinking of their false religious system that they rule over in their evil thinking, they have murdered their own Messiah. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. 
Uh, of course, the Romans are never going to allow a crucified man to escape. They're not going to allow a crucified man to be taken down from the cross until he is dead. So to hasten their death, uh, the, the Romans would take these large clubs and, and shatter or splinter the leg bones, uh, again, by means of uh, heavy uh, blows of a heavy hammer or an iron mallet, in a really uh, inhuman, frighteningly inhuman act that was used to increase the punishment, to increase the suffering uh, of the victim who had been crucified. The soldiers would literally crush or splinter uh, the leg bones, and that would cause the uh, crucified victim to be unable to push off of the wounds in their feet to try to gain a, a breath. Therefore, the whole weight of the body would, would hang down uh, and, uh, on, on the rib cage, thoracic cage, and the lungs would no longer be able to expand and expel the air. So death would come very soon, uh, uh, relatively soon, by way of asphyxiation uh, once the leg bones were shattered. Verse 33... But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, did not break his legs. Again, the Romans are experts in death. The, the Romans knew death when they saw death. They were professional executioners. And, and, and they were experienced in determining death. That was part of their job. And, and most certainly, these men have nothing to gain by lying about Jesus' death. When they come to break his legs, they do not do so, the text says, because they saw he was already dead. Verse 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Now, I told you last time there's a lot, a lot been written on this, on one verse, verse 34. A lot of men write from the medical uh, side of the whole situation, trying to diagnose, evaluate, come to a conclusion uh, on the physical death, the physical, physiological death of Christ. And then there's others on the other side who try to write so that we might find a quote-unquote deeper spiritual meaning to the blood and the water that comes from the side of Christ. And there's been a lot written on that side. Uh, without the physical body to do an autopsy, it'd be very difficult to assume the actual physiological cause of the death of Christ. We know from the scripture that no one took his life. We, we know that he voluntarily laid it down. So the death of Christ is not the death of a victim. The death of Christ is the death of a victor. Jesus died because he sent away his spirit. And when you go to this other side, this supposed greater spiritual meaning of the blood and the greater spiritual meaning of the water, I think you need to be very, very careful there. I just do not see any reason to over-spiritualize that or to over-spiritualize any text. I think the issue here is Jesus is dead. That's the issue. He voluntarily laid down his life as means of atonement for sin which results in forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. It results in the spiritual, uh, our spiritual cleansing by the work of the Holy Spirit, resulting in our justification, our sanctification. And again, Jesus standing in our place and voluntarily giving his life for us, that deals with the legal problem of our guilt. Uh, he gives up his life for us. He stands in our place. He pays the penalty. And his life deals with the spiritual problem of our internal corruption. Uh, so again, it's the substitutionary, sacrificial death of Christ that is the issue. And, and again, I just think we need to go be very careful going beyond that. Uh, way too much has been written on, on so-called uh, deeper spiritual meanings. The issue is he's dead. Now, I told you that Edersheim, the historian, calls the th thrusting of the spear into the sight of Jesus the death stroke. It's one final way to make sure that death is quite certain. If there was any life left in, that, uh, in the victim who was crucified, then immediately that would be seen when the thrust was, uh, of the spear was placed into the side. So if anybody's quote-unquote faking it or pretending to be in a swoon or in a coma or whatever, the thrust spear would really cause some kind of signs of life to be made evident, but there is none because Jesus is already dead. 
Now again, if the question is if Jesus is already dead and the soldiers know that, then why did they administer the death stroke to him? Answer to fulfill scripture. Look down at verse 36. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, verse 37, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So again, in another display of the sovereignty of God over these events, the Old Testament prophet, uh, in his words concerning, uh, concerning the Messiah out of uh, Psalm 34, Zechariah 12, again, giving evidence of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is what the Old Testament prophet said, what happened to him, and Jesus shows up, and this is what happens to him. So Jesus doesn't die of a broken heart. Jesus doesn't die because of a spear thrust. Jesus dies because he's the perfect Lamb. Uh, he's the one who's laid down his life. He's the one who's willingly giving his life voluntarily, again, as a substitutionary sacrifice. And he does this willingly out of love for us. He is our substitute. The wages of sin is what? Death. Somebody has to pay that penalty. And it's Jesus Christ who comes and pays that penalty. Perfect God, perfect man. Verse 35 says, He, was born, he who has seen has borne witness, uh, and, and his witness is true. He knows what he's, uh, that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. Uh, again, all the events surrounding the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, uh, it's not only the divine power of Christ on display uh, in his death and dying, but even uh, more remarkably, the fact that Christ is really exercising control uh, of, of the events of his burial even after he's dead. So uh, the, the Romans have no concern uh, for the bodies of victims that are executed by uh, via crucifixion. Uh, the Romans would have just allowed the bodies there to rot in the sun uh, in full public view, uh, they were to be picked apart by scavenger birds, scavenger animals. Uh, the Jews, interestingly enough, would not allow a criminal, uh, somebody who betrayed as a criminal uh, and, and crucified, they would not allow them to be entombed. Uh, they would not allow this kind of a person to have a proper burial. What they would have done is they taken the body down and taken it to the end of the town, to the city dump, uh, a place called the Valley of Hinnon that was always constantly on fire, always constantly smoldering. So no doubt a picture of the reality of the coming wrath of God in the fires of hell. But God's not going to allow that for the body of his dear son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to allow his body to be dealt with improperly. He's going to make sure that the body of his son is dealt with correctly and properly, and he's going to send in his man uh, to care for it, his men really, uh, that the body of, of Jesus Christ be dealt with properly. And the body has to be dealt with in a relatively a quick manner because it's late in the afternoon. Again, it's just after 3 p.m. He needs to be in the grave by 6 p.m. on Friday so that he can fulfill the prophecy that he foretold that he would be in the grave three days before his resurrection. Again, this is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 9, uh, again, speaking of the Messiah, says, His grave was assigned to be with the wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death. So again, it's God orchestrating the affairs of the burial of his son. Everything's happening exactly as he sovereignly has ordained. Everything's happening exactly as God has planned and purposed uh, from before the foundation of the world. So God's going to send his men who are going to care for the body of his dear son. And again, even in all these events, in his death, Jesus is still fulfilling scripture. He's proving the fact over and over again. God's displaying the fact over and over again that Jesus is the one. He's the old the one the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to, the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came therefore and took away his body. 
Now, this is a fascinating portion of Scripture. There's a lot in here that we won't be able to completely unpack, but it's a fascinating portion of Scripture. And again, John is writing for the express purpose that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, men might have life. Again, I just said it a moment ago, but it's the reality. God desires that men would be saved. He does does not want men to perish in hell. That's what their sin deserves, but he has made provision through his Son. So every man can either face God in judgment or men can come to God in mercy and accept the sacrifice, the substitute, the person of Jesus Christ. And John writes that men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing they might have life in his name because that's God's desire because of the great love that he has for the world, even though the world is in rebellion against him. Now, John, throughout the writing of, the, of his Gospels, has per, uh, given us many examples of unbelief, but then he also gives us examples of belief, right? The disciples, for example, uh, the converted Samaritan woman back in chapter 4, uh, the man healed by the pool, uh, the two sisters of Lazarus there in the town of Bethany, etc., and so forth. So again, the goal of John's writing back in verse 35 is that you may believe. So here at the foot of the cross, we're not surprised to find another example of saving faith. That's what's going on here. Yeah, John's just quoted out of the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 12.10, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of our firstborn. Prophet goes on at the top of the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. He says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So immediately John's going to give us an example of two men who experience the blessing of saving faith by looking at the cross. Two men that find cleansing through Christ's uh, atoning sacrifice. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were Pharisees who had been uh, uh, were uh, Pharisees, but who were previously secret disciples, who are going to come and give a powerful uh, public testimony, openly identifying themselves now with the Savior, the crucified one. Which tells us, these two men, Jews, coming forward, tells us that God is not done with the nation of Israel, right? God is exercising his power through the person of Jesus Christ. Not every Jew has uh, rejected, many have, but not every Jew has rejected uh, Jesus as the Christ. Again, God's not completely rejected his people, Israel, uh, uh, Romans chapter 11. Matthew, at the end of his uh, uh, gospel account, Matthew 27, uh, tells us that the centurion and the Roman uh, guards there that were keeping watch over the cross after they saw the supernatural events that surrounded the death of Christ, uh, they become frightened, but they say this. They say of Jesus, they say, this man, truly this man was the son of God. So it's really God on display, God in his magnificent kindness through the Holy Spirit opening men's eyes, Jews and Gentiles, to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, uh, who's just been crucified. God again declaring to men, all men, that the kingdom uh, of God is open to all who would like to come through the crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, again being a disciple of Jesus. Now, we don't know a lot about uh, Joseph because his name is not found anywhere else in the New Testament, either, uh, except for here. Uh, he comes, of, uh, here, comes forward here at the events of the burial of the cross and identifies himself, which is a significant issue, identifies himself as a friend of the crucified one. Uh, as to Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know exactly where that's at either. Uh, Luke calls it the, a city of Judea. Uh, we know it has to be close to Jerusalem because we know that, G, that uh, Joseph is there at the time of the crucifixion, and we know that he has a tomb uh, nearby that's going to be used for the body of the Lord. 
concerning his person, the scripture does give us a little bit more information about Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew tells us he was a rich man, Matthew 27, verse 57. Mark says that he was a prominent member of the council of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body that sentenced Jesus to death. He was an honorable counselor who was waiting for the kingdom of God, Mark 15, 43. Uh, Luke tells us he was a good man, a righteous man, a just man, a man who, is not, uh, who had not consented uh, to the plan of the Sanhedrin to murder this innocent man, Jesus. John tells us that Joseph was a disciple, uh, but a fearful one. Somewhere along the way in his interaction, he'd become a true believer, but he hid his allegiance to Christ out of fear until now. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, here it is, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now, again, Joseph of Arimathea is not the only one who believed upon Jesus and believed secretly that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, he was not the only one that didn't have the courage to, to step up and confess him before his crucifixion. You might remember back in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So now you have these two men, Joseph and, and Nicodemus, uh, both members of the Sanhedrin, the council, and now they've gathered courage to publicly identify with this crucified one. And they've done it out of their love for him. Out of their love for him, they're now willing to be publicly associated with him. Now when Jesus was alive, both Joseph and Nicodemus were not willing to give up their powers in the, in the council. They were not willing to give up their power. They're not willing to give up their position, their prestige. In his life, they were not willing to identify with Jesus. But these men, like believers everywhere, even in our time, even each and every one of us in the room here this morning, we need to make a decision on how we're going to publicly deal with the person of Jesus Christ. We're either going to stand publicly with the person of Jesus Christ or realize when we do not do that that we are standing against him in a wicked and perverse generation. If we don't stand with him, we are standing against him. That's what he says in Matthew 12, verse 30. And we need to realize that if we follow him publicly, then it's going to cost us something. And we must be willing to take this, that stand and then pay that price. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. John Phillips, in his commentary, has a great observation. He says this, he says, In one way or another, every believer in Christ must face the fear of reprisals from the world. In many places, believers daily face the fear of arrest and bodily harm. True Christians everywhere face scorn from the world. Ironically, it says we live in a day where people are open, quote, coming out of the closet, close quote, boldly proclaiming every kind of sexual perversion when virtually every human vice has been set free from scandal. Why then, he asks, are people afraid to come out as believers in Jesus? The answer is the fear of what people will say and do in response. The fear of man brings a snare. He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. We need to determine in our heart once and for always, and even more, I think, especially in the day in which we live, to choose to take our stand publicly with the person of Jesus Christ. 
We need to choose to take our stand publicly with the person of Jesus Christ, not be ashamed of him as our savior, and not be ashamed of his glorious gospel. It is the only hope that men have. He is the only hope that men have. There is no other answer. And I think we need to realize that if we don't take our stand with Christ, then we're standing in the camp of the enemy. We're casting our lot with this wicked, evil world that is perishing and under the active judgment of God. I've told you this a hundred times. That's why the crazy is out. It's part of the active judgment of God. God, wrath of God is being revealed. Men, men have minds that don't work. Uh, men, God is suppressing men to have any kind of understanding of any uh, truth because they've rejected the truth. So God is just giving more and more darkness. The wicked world that we live in is perishing. It's under uh, 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 the judgment, the active judgment of God. And our only option is either we take our stand with Christ or we take our stand against him. Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me, says the Savior. Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, says Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 32, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but he who shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Mark 8, verse 38, forever is ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We must not be afraid to take our stand with Christ. And we should make every, or take every opportunity we have to make public uh, profession of our faith in Christ. Let everyone around us know who we follow, especially when we start something new especially when you go to a new job or go to university or, or you enter to some kind of new situation, some kind of new social setting. Let people know immediately right up front that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be an encouragement to your heart and that will keep you from the temptation of the fear of men. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. Now both of these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, are now willing to take a public open stand for Christ. And in doing so, it's going to cost them everything. It's going to cost them their membership in the, in the Jewish council. It's going to cost them their relationships, their friends, their family, their associates. It's going to cost them their businesses. It's going to cost them their social status. They're going to be cut off from the Jewish society. They're going to be thrown out of the synagogue, and that was the center of a Jewish life. Uh, and because they're now willing to take uh, uh, to be associated with the person of Jesus Christ again, the one whom the religious leaders of the nation have just condemned as a blasphemer. Their public association with Jesus Christ, Christ, listen, is going to be difficult on their families. But nothing has changed. John fifteen eighteen, Christ says, "If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you." If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember what the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. We need to take our stand with Christ. We need to not be fearful of men. We need to let the Lord exalt us. And these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they're no longer fearful. They're no longer ashamed of Christ. 
even in his death, out of the love that they have, both of these men have for him, they're suddenly going to become very courageous for Christ. Out of love, they're going to make sure that Jesus has a proper burial. They're not going to allow the body of Jesus to rot on the cross. They're not going to allow the, the body of Jesus to be thrown down in the city dump at the end of town that the Romans would have normally done with the body of criminals. For these men, the cross has changed everything. And their public conversion of both of these men, seen here at the foot of the cross, demonstrates that Christ has the ability to save even as he reigns from the cross. The grace of God, the effectual calling of God, the love of God is being displayed at the cross through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to rescue these men from their fear. Exactly what Jesus said, John 12, 32, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus are going to gain courage. The, the, the disciples have fled. They're long gone. And again, in the day in which we live, we need to take a bold stand, an open public stand. We need to get courage and stand with Christ because there's no such thing as secret disciples. The attempt to blend in with the world is not possible for the genuine believer. First uh, John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Truth is, souls all around us are perishing. Souls all around us are desperately in need of the witness of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. And if you and I say nothing to them, then as they draw closer to the gates of hell, I think that one day we will give an account for our cowardice. So we need to pray that God would give us the boldness and the grace and the courage and the willingness to take a strong stand for Christ. Because again, people all around us are in desperate need of Christ. It's a darkened world and the world is growing darker by the moment. And we who've been changed and transformed by the cross are called to be lights in this dark world. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're called to be the, the messengers of hope and pointing people to the person of Christ and pointing people to the gospel. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. Now again, this is a tremendous amount of courage displayed by this man. Uh, again, during Christ's life, Joseph had exhibited a sinful cowardice and fear. But now he has great courage here at the cross of Christ to approach Pilate to ask for the body of a man whom the governing authorities had just put to death as an insurrectionist, as a rival king. And listen, there's absolutely no earthly reason why Pilate would give him the body. From the Roman standpoint, there's no reason whatsoever that the body should come off the cross. From Pilate's standpoint, uh, one who's absolutely sick of dealing with the Jews, one who mockingly had just put a sign uh, over the head of Jesus saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why would he take the body down? Why not leave it up a little bit longer and mock the Jews as long as possible? Again, he despised the Jews. He hated them. The religious leaders just want the bodies off the cross. They don't want the body, but Joseph wants the body. And Pilate, if you look very carefully at the text, Pilate doesn't even ask the reason why. He just hands the body of Jesus over to Joseph 
uh, of Arimathea once he's certain that uh, Jesus is dead. Joseph asked, again, verse 38, Joseph asked uh, Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. Why in the world would he do that? Here's why, because God's in charge. It's God and his providence. God is the one who's working behind the scenes. It's God who's sovereignly moving in the heart of this pagan ruler, Pilate, and in the hearts of the wicked religious leaders to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill his word. Jesus has to be off the cross and in the grave, not to fulfill the desires of the <clears throat> religious leaders, but Jesus has to be off the cross <clears throat> and in the grave before sunset to fulfill Scripture. He has to be in the grave part of Friday, Saturday, and then part of Sunday so to fulfill what he said would happen. So here's God working in the hearts of Joseph and uh, Nicodemus to fulfill uh, his word to make sure that the body of his dear son is cared for. And again, here's God even working in the hearts of the wicked men behind the scenes. The wicked are working not because they know that they're fulfilling Scripture. They're doing those things that are uh, their own personal motivations. Uh, the wicked after their own wicked heart. But again, Joseph and Nicodemus out of their love for Christ. God working. God fulfilling Scripture. Everyone moving quickly. Uh, so all of this is done before the sun sets at 6 p.m. and the Sabbath comes. Verse 38 continues, and Pilate asked, uh, they asked, Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission, and he came therefore and took away his body. It's interesting to note <clears throat> that touching a dead body would make these men ceremonially as Jews unclean. So here it is the afternoon before the high feast, the, pi the Passover, the Sabbath, but these men out of their love for Christ aren't concerned about that. Not concerned about ceremonial defilement. They're concerned about the body of Christ because they love him. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night. John mentions Nicodemus three times in his gospel account. First, you see him as a secret inquirer back in chapter 3. Then you see him again in chapter 7. There he's a timid advocate of justice towards the Lord Jesus uh, uh, in the Jewish uh, council. And then here the third time uh, at the cross. Nicodemus came also. He first came to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about a hundred pound weight. Now I know some of your translations say seventy pound, seventy five pound weight, or seventy five pounds, and that's a, there's a reason for that because in the Roman uh, Roman pound was twelve ounces, not our sixteen. So a hundred pound Roman's weight would be about seventy five pounds, what we would understand. So there's no um, mixed up there. There's no mistake. It's just uh, understanding conversion. Now, certainly you'd have to assume that these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, had got together beforehand in advance, talking about what they would do with the, uh, with the body of Jesus. Uh, again, Joseph of Arimathea, his part is to go uh, gather the body, to uh, obtain the body from Pilate. And Nicodemus, he goes to gather large amounts of aromatic spices for the burial. Myrrh is a resin that was uh, used, a fragrant resin that was used by the Egyptians and others. When they embalmed the dead, the Jews mixed it with aloe, which is kind of an aromatic uh, mixture, an aromatic powder. Some say it's like the scent of lilies. Uh, the Jews didn't embalm their dead as the Egyptians did. Uh, the Jews did not uh, remove any of the internal organs. So what the Jews did in their burial preparations, uh, their whole intent was simply to combat the smell. That was it, simply combat the smell of the body in decomposition. 
So they would use enormous amounts of spice and mixture uh, to prepare the body. So they'd wrapped it in these long strips of cloth that were laden with these aromatic spices. Uh, they'd wrap around the body of Christ, and the more spice would be packed around the body and underneath the body again to try to fight the smell of the decomposition. Now, the truth is 75 pounds of this stuff is an amazing amount. It's a staggering amount uh, of uh, uh, spices, uh, uh, to, ripe, uh, to, to wrap a body in uh, far exceeds the normal amount what most people would use in a burial. So some uh, scholars have, quote-unquote scholars, have said that John has exaggerated or John is lying, not telling the truth here. But what they fail to see or fail to realize is that these two men are giving this man Jesus under the direction of God the Father. They're giving him the burial of a king. Because that's exactly what this is. This is a kind of uh, amount of material that would use, be, be used in a burial of a king. Uh, so Jesus is being buried as a king under the direction of the, the Father. The body's going to be laid in a newly cut out tomb, uh, hewn out of the side of the hill. Nobody's ever laid there before. Uh, there's no corruption in that tomb, never has been. And that's where the body of Jesus is going to be laid. So again, it's God and his providence working behind the scenes using these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, to take care of the body of his dearly beloved son. And, and Joseph has this newly cut tomb in a hill nearby, and, and these men uh, who were once rulers of the, of the, in the Jewish religious system, once who were secret disciples, now have the honor to publicly identify themselves in the burial of Christ. The privilege of identifying themselves with the body of Christ, taking care of the body of Christ, making sure that the body is placed in this tomb, taken care of properly, and placed in this tomb that again was originally dug out for Joseph. And one of the reasons I read Psalm 16 is because in Psalm 16.10, uh, says that God in his sovereignty preserves the body of Christ from suffering decay. Right, so the only smell that's coming out of the tomb when it's open is the sweet fragrance of the aroma of the spices that uh, oh, came out on resurrection morning. Now, one thing I think that's obvious but really needs to be noted is that these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and the women who come the next day to anoint the body, uh, none of them were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. He repeatedly said he was going to do that on the third day, but none of them expected it to actually happen. If they really believed what he said was going to happen, then they wouldn't have bothered to prepare the body so thoroughly and wrap him in this, all these, uh, this 75 pounds of goo and all this uh, cloth to keep him uh, in there from, from smelling. But nobody understood the reality of the resurrection. Because the truth is, once you die, you stay dead. The reality of the truth is no man in human history has ever defeated death except this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 40, they took, his, took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41, now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The burial of Jesus Christ is indisputable proof that Jesus is dead. Again, the proof is indisputable. Death has been verified uh, by the professional executioners, the Roman guards. It's confirmed by the fact that they did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. Death has been verified by both Joseph and Nicodemus, 
uh, the ones who dealt with the body of Christ, because if there was any life left in him, they most certainly would never have wrapped him in this perfumed burial cloths and then sealed him in the tomb and go away, but they did. And they did that because Jesus Christ is dead. And again, in the providential sovereign working of God, he's proclaiming the deity of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his burial, again through fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that is happening here is happening according to the plan, the purposes of God, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the King of the Jews. And because he's dead, his enemies have seemingly triumphed over him at the crucifixion. But the reality is God is in charge, not wicked men. And the reality is that God is providentially laying the groundwork for his son's vindication. God has brought all these witnesses in the courtroom, as it were. He's brought all these witnesses forth, and they have all declared and proved without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is dead. He's been buried. He is dead. And it's interesting, in Matthew, in the end of his account, Matthew chapter 27, verse 59 says, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in these clean cloths, verse 60, laid over, and then he laid it over a, a new tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. He rolled a, a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. They put him, they wrap him up in this, this goo mixture, they put him in the tomb, they roll a stone over it because he's dead. Now when they roll the stone over the entrance of the tomb, that's a separation. He's just been cut off of the land of the living. The grave is now a prison, as it were. The prison door has been locked, bolted. Rolling the stone over the entrance of the tomb, the, the grave's mouth, the funeral's over, it's completed. So in silence and sorrow, they deposit the dead body of their beloved Jesus in the grave. They roll the stone over the entrance of the tomb. They depart without any further ceremony. They leave because it's done. Jesus is dead. And again, his enemies have seemingly triumphed over him at the crucifixion. But again, God is the one we need to keep our view on because God is really laying the groundwork again for the Son's vindication. God has sent all these different witnesses, have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is dead. Lived a real life, died a real death, is dead, he's been buried. In fact, in just a few verses in, the, uh, in, in, in Matthew's account, the enemies of Christ are going to come and they're going to conspire together to create a scenario that will make it impossible to carry out a deception or to fake the resurrection. They're going to demand that a seal be placed over the grave and they're going to demand that there be guards placed in front of the tomb to guard the tomb. So that when Jesus comes out of that tomb, it will again will be God affirming the deity of his son because God's in charge, not me. In fact, go just turn back there for a, a, a bit. And let me just show you a couple of things out of the, out of the Matthew 27 uh, passage. Matthew 27, starting there in 62. Matthew 27, verse 62. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Now this is a tremendously interesting section of Scripture for a variety of reasons. First off, the chief priests were primarily Sadducees. Uh, they are theological opponents of the Pharisees. The Sadducees are the theological liberals of their day. The, the Pharisees are the hardcore fundamentalists. 
the only thing that ever united these two groups of theological men, uh, and normally who were in opposition to each other, the only thing that ever united them was their common hatred for Christ. So again, you see these two groups of men coming together. They're coming together, uh, and they're still enemies of Christ even after Christ is dead. And secondly, I think the whole thing is interesting because it says on the Sabbath, again, the Passover Sabbath, uh, uh, the Passover uh, Sabbath, uh, as a matter of fact, but both of these religious groups come together. Again, the chief priests and the Pharisees, listen, gather together, here's the two words, with Pilate. You say, well, why is that interesting? Well, if you remember just a day earlier, uh, on Friday, when the Jewish crowd had arrived uh, at the Praetorium, uh, and these men pretended they would not enter into the Praetorium because they, they remember they made Pilate come outside on the porch to talk to them, uh, the Jewish religious leaders. They didn't want to go into the, inside the, the Praetorium because they didn't want to, quote-unquote, defile themselves uh, because the Sabbath was the, the next day. At least that's what they said. That was on Friday. But now here it's on the Sabbath. And it's not just any Sabbath. It's the Passover Sabbath. And suddenly these men seem to have no problem with the rules, Right? They, they seem to have no problem whatsoever going into Pilate's headquarters. Uh, the, co the, the commentator Lenski, uh, the Lutheran commentator, says this. He says, now these Jews have no scruples about entering the residence of the Gentile governor, for even this high day does not deter them. He says, we see how they play fast and loose with their own religious regulations. Men who had stooped to murder were certainly capable of lesser transgressions. Again, if these men have no problem murdering Jesus, they're going to have no problem going into the home of Pilate, the Roman governor, on the Sabbath, right? They're not interested in that. that uh, the rules have no effect over them. And again, here it is on the Sabbath, the very day that they should have been confessing their sins, the very day they should have been asking for pardon. They're going to defile themselves, again, by their own standard and go into the house of, uh, of Pilate, the headquarters of Pilate, and they're going to seek to secure the tomb. And another point of irony in this story that's full of irony, was it not these same men who very often in the ministry of Jesus uh, quarreled with Christ because he performed so many great acts of mercy on the Sabbath? But here they're carrying out great acts of evil on the Sabbath. And what's even more interesting, I told you this is an interesting point, what's even more interesting uh, on this account is the chief priests and the Pharisees not only disagreed theologically on many issues, except again their common hatred for Christ. One of the things that uh, uh, they came to talk, the, the very thing they came to talk to Pilate about is the one thing they most vehemently disagreed on, and that's the resurrection, any kind of a resurrection. Again, the chief priests made up largely of Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Theological or liberals, they think the whole thing is absurd. They scoff at it. They don't have any fear like the Pharisees do of resurrection because, again, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So the prime movers at this undertaking to secure the tomb before Pilate have to be the Pharisees. And again, not that they necessarily believe that Jesus would or could rise from the dead, doesn't really have that power, does he? Yet because they believe in a resurrection, they taught their followers to believe in a resurrection. And perhaps their fear maybe was that 
People might actually believe at some point Jesus had risen from the dead. Maybe somebody would try to fake it happening. So they go to Pilate. Again, they're not, discerned, they're not concerned about defiling themselves on the Sabbath because they have so many times fragrant, flagrantly violated the Mosaic, uh, Mosaic law and rabbinic tradition by falsely accusing, falsely condemning to death an innocent man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're not going to have any problems with this minor infraction of going into the governor's home to carry out their evil plans. Now on the next day, which is one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, verse 63, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. And again, so hateful are they, are, are they of the person of Jesus, they won't even say his name. That deceiver, that imposter. They go to before Pilate, who's somewhat of an earthly king, as it will, of, of sorts. They, they've shown feigned, uh, shade, uh, feigned respect for him. They call him sir. And they have no respect whatsoever for Jesus Christ, who's the true king of kings, who is the truth incarnate, and they call the truth incarnate a deceiver. Again, referring to the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. Now, it's interesting, Christ claimed that a number of times to his disciples, uh, Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, 20, verse 19, but his disciples never got it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand that believe, or believe that Jesus would be murdered and then he would rise from the grave, although he told them that a number of times. And more likely, this situation, this incident that the haters of Christ are referring to, when they said, sir, remember that when he was alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. More than likely, what they're referring to is out of Matthew 12, verse 30, 38 and 40, when the religious leaders demanded a sign from Jesus, and Jesus answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, but yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's fascinating that the enemies of Jesus remember this promise that after his death he would rise from the dead to prove that he is the Messiah. Again, while his own disciples never grasped a word of it. They, they just let what he said pass completely through their minds. Now, the enemies of Christ didn't believe in him when he was alive, and they still don't believe in him after his resurrection. But they wanted to do everything they could to make sure nothing terrible would happen. So here's the request, verse 64. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception be worse than the first. It's very interesting because the last thing in the disciples' mind would, come, would be to come and steal the body of Christ because where are they? No idea, right? They're gone. They're hiding someplace in fear. The disciples did not believe that Jesus would be literally raised from the dead. You remember they couldn't even uh, conceive of a Messiah dying uh, and therefore they have no category for a Messiah rising from the dead. Now they understood there's going to be a general resurrection in the end of, the, of times in the future, but they don't get the resurrection with reference to Jesus. Even after Peter and John go to the tomb and they find, they find the tomb empty, John 20, verse 9, as for yet, John says, as for yet, they did not understand the scripture that he, might, that he must rise again from the grave. 
right? They didn't understand the scripture. He must rise again from the dead. Uh, so the religious leaders have these fears that his disciples might come and, and steal the bodies. It's completely unfounded. Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal away and say to his people, he's risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. The fear of the disciples to come and steal the body of Christ and claim that it was raised from the dead is ridiculous. It's interesting that these religious rulers who are really liars and deceivers themselves, it's interesting that these men think that other people are just like them. That Jesus' disciples would come and try to deceive the masses. They'd come and steal the body out of the tomb and dispose of it secretly, and the, they would go and spread false reports that he'd have been risen from the dead. It's interesting that they think that other people would do that because that's exactly what deceivers do themselves. And they think other men are just like them. Again, the reality of the fact is stealing the body from the tomb was the last thing on the disciples' minds. I'm not so sure that the fact is that the Pharisees actually feared the disciples coming and stealing the body of Christ whatsoever. Again, it's the last thing on the disciples' minds. And again, the disciples don't seem to me to be like a group of men that a lot of fear should be raised from them whatsoever. The religious leaders, they come to arrest Jesus in the garden. What do these guys do? These guys all run. I know Peter pulls a sword, but then he flees, right? He denies Christ. Everybody's gone, save perhaps John. The religious leaders, if they'd actually feared the disciples were going to come and do this thing, they could have easily arrested them just like they arrested Jesus. But they didn't do that. Therefore, I, can conclude, I, I conclude that uh, the disciples really stealing the, the body of Christ is really not an issue for these men. You know what I think the issue is? I think the issue is these religious leaders actually feared Jesus Christ. Oh, they hate him. They've been watching him for three years. And for three years of his ministry, he's healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's cast out demons. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They've seen him restore limbs of those whose limbs had never worked. And even so, uh, even more... uh, Uh, Most amazingly, just a few days before all of these events took place, Jesus had literally raised Lazarus from the dead after four days being in the tomb, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. There was no denying the miraculous power of Jesus. There are too many of them, uh, too uh, uh, too many witnesses, too many miracles. You remember that I told you that the enemies of Jesus Christ never once denied his miraculous power what they did was is they tried to pass off his power that it belonged to the devil. So here's Jesus, this amazingly powerful preacher and teacher, the one who worked amazing uh, miracles. He claimed that after three days of being dead, he would be raised from the dead by God himself. He would prove, therefore, that he was the Messiah. And I think for the Pharisees, they began to worry in their minds, what if it is true? I think they feared the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. 
I think they feared that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead might actually conquer death himself. And if he did that, he would destroy their little religious empire. I think they feared Christ. I think they feared the resurrection. So what are they going to do? They're going to do everything they can. They're going to do everything they can. They're going to seal the, the tomb with a uh, we're gonna, the, the tomb that's been uh, sealed with the stone, they're going to put a little seal on it, a little piece of glue here and a little piece of glue here and a little thing to say nobody opened it up, right? And then they're going to put some guards outside. They're going to put some guards outside, listen, to keep him in, to keep Christ in the tomb. And the whole thing is utter folly. To think you can put a little wax seal on this tomb, to think that you can put a few guards in front of it, and that's going to keep the one who had all power from fulfilling his own prediction and promises in rising from the dead. It's the foolishness on display of the fallen heart of man's mind, man's fallen mind. For man to think that he can ever stand and usurp the plans and the purposes of God, that somehow fallen men can overturn the power of the sovereign God, sovereign God is absolutely ridiculous. Here's the issue. Jesus is dead. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time together in your word this morning. And we're thankful for this text of Scripture that again points to us the reality that Jesus is dead. He's been buried. He's lived a real life and a real body and died a real death and has gone, undergone a real burial. He's dead. That reality is undeniable, proved over and over again. which gives you an opportunity to, again, to display your power for Christ to display his power over death when he raises himself from the dead to prove that he is the Messiah. So what wicked men do and evil and wicked men do and their folly, you overcome all of that because Christ is the anointed one. We're so thankful for this time looking very deeply at the burial of Christ in anticipation of the resurrection. And we're thankful for Christ, and we pray, Lord, you give us courage to take bold stands for you and bold stands for the Savior here in time in a fallen, wicked world that is in rebellion against you, but yet in your great love and mercy, offer forgiveness of sin for those who would repent and come to Christ. Help us to have the courage to take our stand with Christ and not with this wicked world, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.